All right, good evening, everybody. Good to see several of you already posting messages. Get myself centered and take down my beautiful sign. All right. You can open up to Matthew chapter 9 tonight. We have quite a bit to cover. I'd like for you to keep your Bibles handy. going to, by the grace of God, turn you to several other places in Scripture tonight. And as always, I will open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we come to You in Jesus' name, and we thank You that we have access into this grace wherein we stand. And Father, here at the throne of grace, we can find the help in a time of need. And Lord, there's never a time we do not need Your help, but especially when we open Your Word, we desire that the Holy Spirit guide us into all truth. Please, Father, teach us things deep, teach us things practical, Prepare each person listening, myself included, to better serve you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Then, all right, Matthew chapter 9. And uh, I'm give you a five-part outline for this chapter. All right, number one, the Messiah can forgive. Messiah can forgive, verses 1 to 8. Part two, meeting at Matthew's house, verses 9 to 13. Meeting at Matthew's house. Part three, made new. I'll explain that further when we get to it. Verses 14 to 17, made new. Part four, miracles. Now these are assorted miracles, but so I I have it broken down into subcategories, but this will cover verses 18 to 34. So the miracles we're going to read about, raising the dead, uh, healing a woman of an issue of blood. I just put issue of blood. Blindness and dumb. A, a dumb man cannot speak. All right, and then the last part, part five, multitudes without a master. Multitudes without a master, verses 35 to the end of the chapter, verse 38. All right, got a lot to cover. Let's jump right into it. Verse one, it says, and he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. Now, when you compare this with Mark chapter two, at the beginning of, of Mark two, you have this same story. And there we have the name of the city. It is Capernaum. But this is something we already knew. We, we've been introduced to that earlier in the book of Matthew, that Jesus, that was his head uh, home base, let's call it that, during his ministry. One thing I'd like to point out quickly about verse 1. I don't know if you noticed it. From the end of the last chapter, Jesus told the disciples, get into a boat. We're going to the other side. This big storm arose. You remember the story. Jesus calms the storm, and then the two maniacs come out, filled with legion, a legion of devils. Jesus casts out these legions, and then those those men, they're sitting there clothed in their right mind, and then it says Jesus enters into the ship and goes back. If I understand this correctly, and the timing is the same in, in each of the Gospels where this is mentioned, Jesus got into the boat, went over to the other side, went through a storm just to reach those two men, those two maniacs, and then came back to the the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So I'll let you run with that thought. It's a very practical thought, but it's something about how far Jesus will go to help people. Verse 2, And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. 
Now again, when you compare this in Mark's Gospel, we get a little bit more information. This is where four men carry their friend on what we would know as a stretcher, and, and they break up the roof and lower him down through the roof. So Matthew doesn't give us all of those details. Jesus went out of His way to reach the two maniacs of Gadara. But then in chapter 9, we see some, some men going out of their way to bring their sick friend to Jesus. Jesus has gone out of His way for us. Now it's time for, our, for us to go out of our way to bring other sinners, to bring other spiritually sick people to Jesus, no matter what it takes. If we have to break up part of the roof and lower the sinner down, anything to get them to Jesus. Now, this man who is sick of the palsy, so he's paralyzed, hence he has to be carried. Jesus says to him, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now that, when that was said, again in Mark's Gospel, we, we read that the Pharisees begin to, to think within themselves. How can he say this? He's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. So that statement really shook the people. Nobody said anything out loud, but, verse 3, Behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said... See, they didn't express it out loud, but He knows that they're troubled with that statement He made. He said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? So they think that He's saying something that only God can say. He is. right? Jesus did not correct their, their thinking... And what I mean by that is to say, he didn't say, wait a minute, guys, I'm not God. Uh, God can forgive sins, but I can also forgive sins. The way that Jesus is saying, thy sins be forgiven thee, it's not as if this paralyzed man had offended Jesus and now Jesus needed to forgive him for some particular thing that he did to him personally. He's making a general statement, thy sins be forgiven thee, in the place of God. So Jesus does not correct the scribes and Pharisees to say, listen, I'm, I'm not God. Rather, verse 5, for whether is easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and walk. He said, which, which thing would you like for me to say? Which one would, you, would, uh, would, would, you, would sit better with you? Now, in verse 5, what we have are two sides of the same ministry. We have an inward ministry, that is the sins being forgiven, and then an outward ministry manifestation or evidence of that inward ministry. So it's those two parts. So Jesus has acknowledged that the, the cause of the sickness has been taken care of, and this will therefore heal the man. Now, if you know in, in James chapter 5, verse 15, it, said, it gives a conditional case. If a sickness is caused by sin, then that man who comes and, and asks for help, he can be forgiven the sin, and then that can physically help him. So sometimes, if somebody is sick because of sin, then they need first to confess that to the Lord and find forgiveness, and then the physical will uh, also come right. So that, I believe, is the case that we're dealing with here. Jesus is saying, guys, I could just say, arise and walk. But Jesus is going out of His way to show something to these people, that He's not just another prophet. He is a prophet, he is the prophet, but he's much more than that. And he's, he's beginning to, to show himself for who he is, that, that he is God in the flesh. 
Verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man, now that's another way of referring to the Messiah, hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. So he says, if, if you guys want to know that I have truly granted this man forgiveness of his sins in an eternal fashion, right? The, the sins that he had committed against God. Jesus had made a, an official declaration. Those sins were forgiven. He says, now let me give you some outward evidence because these guys are Jews, right? They require a sign. Let me show you that something spiritual has happened. And then the outward evidence of that came to pass. Verse 7, He arose and departed to His house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. Now, of course, this is how the multitude would see it. They, they look at this and think, my goodness, this is just a man doing these great things. We know because we have the full revelation of the New Testament who Jesus was. This was God manifest in the flesh. As I say, these things are starting to show that. Now, one thing I'd like to mention about this passage, and I'm not trying to get too far off topic here, so I'll try to be brief about this. Uh, those of you that have been with us for a while, you might remember when I had the debate with Yusuf Ismail, one of the points of contention that he often brings up in a lot of his debates, and he did it in ours as well, he, he um, believes that the Gospel of Mark was the first one written. And then Matthew looked at Mark, at Mark's Gospel, and whoever wrote Matthew, Yusuf doesn't believe it was Matthew, he says whoever wrote it, he took the words of Mark and then improved upon them and tried to make Jesus look more like God. Well, this story is just one of many examples to show that if you read in Mark's Gospel, it does have the statement about what the Pharisees were thinking. They were thinking, this man's taking the place of God. Matthew did not include that particular information in his report, which simply goes to show that the idea of Mark being written first, and then Matthew using Mark and some other Q document or whatever other documents they claimed that he had, and he improved upon Mark and glossed over various things and fixed things, that... That doesn't hold true with, with what Yusuf and several other scholars um, say about this. Matthew has his own account, and Mark has, has his. And there, there is no, There's no indication that Matthew used Mark, tried to improve it, and make Jesus to be something he wasn't. This looks like an honest report of, of how Matthew heard the story. Now, verse number 9. Verse number 9, it says, And as Jesus passed forth from thence... He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. Uh, it's where people paid their customs, fees, and taxes, and things like that. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now we don't have much information in any of the Gospels about Matthew's calling into the ministry. It's always presented very simply, just as we've read it here. One verse given about it. I would assume that much like Peter and Andrew had already met Jesus before Jesus officially said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. I would assume that Matthew and Jesus had some prior knowledge of each other, which made it very simple for Jesus to walk by and say, okay, now come follow me. And that was, that was all Matthew needed was that, that uh, uh, official calling, if you will. 
but I, I can't speak too much more about it because we just are so limited in our information. The reason I believe we have verse 9 in the narrative is to set, uh, to kind of give us the, the, the setting for what comes next. Because verses 10 down to 13, we're going to be reading about a special meeting that took place in Matthew's house. And since we haven't met Matthew yet in the Gospels, um, it, I believe Matthew's kind of introducing himself very quickly and then getting into why his name needs to be there. Just so that you know whose house it was, it explains why there were other publicans and people, sinners in that house. It just gives us a little bit of background to make sense out of the story to come. Now, actually, there's a little bit more I need to say about verse 9. And again, I'm going to use Yusuf and one of the contentions he has. Um, and it's not only him. A lot of Bible uh, scholars and um, textual critics have said the same thing. People will say that Matthew did not write the Gospel of Matthew because in verse 9, Matthew's name is given. And if Matthew's writing it, he would have said, Jesus passed by and called me, and then I said, and I arose, and he would have put himself as the first person. So the fact that he's written in the third, it is written in the third person, people say then, Matthew, that disqualifies him as the author of this gospel. Now, there is no verse in the gospel of Matthew that says Matthew wrote this gospel. All right, We, we need to admit that. We need to know that. It, it, it's unlike Paul's epistles where, where it starts off, Paul, an apostle, to the church of, and then goes on. Matthew never does that. So if Matthew is not the author of the gospel that bears his name, it's really not an issue because there's, it's not going to be contradicting any verse of Scripture. It is true that as church history unfolded, and we're talking very soon, very early in the record, we're talking first century, right? The first century of church history. Matthew's name was attached to this gospel. That was the, can I say, popular consensus. That was the thought about this gospel is that Matthew wrote it. There, there really wasn't any contention in the early church about that. Contention about it arose in the 1700s with German rationalism and a bunch of other stuff we don't need to get into. But there's really no biblical reason to doubt that Matthew wrote it. Let me give you just a couple cross-references just to show that even though a person's writing something, he can still refer to himself in the third person. I, I don't do that very often. I don't like talking about, uh, Pastor Mike would say, and Pastor Mike, I, I would just say I. But if I were to talk about myself in the third person, it, it doesn't mean I'm uh, contradicting any any rules or breaking any rules. Come to Psalm chapter 144. Psalm 144. Psalm 144. And David is the author of this psalm. Look at uh, Psalm 144. Look right underneath the heading of it. Underneath the chapter number. Uh, some Bibles don't have that little subscript. But in my Bible, it says Psalm 144, and then a subscript underneath that, real small letters, a Psalm of David, which those, that subscript, it is not a verse of Scripture, but it is part of the manuscript record that we have. The, the manuscripts we have of the Old Testament does bear that 
subscript. Now come on down to verse number 10. It is he that giveth salvation unto kings, who delivereth David his servant from the hurtful sword. So do you see, David wrote this psalm, but David refers to himself in the third person. That it doesn't mean that David didn't write the psalm. It just David wrote it. He has the linguistic uh, uh, prerogative. If he wants to write it like that, then he can. Uh, look at Ezekiel chapter 1. I'll show you another real solid one here. Ezekiel chapter 1. By the way, there are several of these. I'm only going to show you two of them. But you can find this over and over again in the Bible. Somebody referring to themselves in the third person. Ezekiel 1, look at verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I, do you see that? As I was among the captives by the river of Kibar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw the visions of God. There's Ezekiel speaking in the first person. I saw it. Verse 2, In the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's, or Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar, and the hand of the Lord was there upon him. Do you see how it switched to the third person? Ezekiel went from first person, now he's going to mention his name, third person, and look at verse 4. And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north in a great cloud, and so forth. And then he switches back to first person. So this is not unusual, and it's not wrong if Matthew is writing this gospel and puts his name in the third person. No problems. All right, Matthew 9, and let's get verse 10. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house... Uh, now, again, from other Gospels, you know this is Matthew's house. Behold, many publicans, those are tax collectors, and sinners. Now, be careful. This word sinners, a lot of times when we first start to read the Bible, we, we approach it with the idea of, or let's say, one definition of what a sinner is, right? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, so everybody's a sinner. That is true. Theologically, doctrinally, that's true. But the way that the word is used throughout the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament sometimes, for instance, Matthew, as he writes it here, there, there are the righteous and then there are the wicked. And one of the synonyms for wicked is sinner. A sinner in this, with this definition, in this context, is somebody who purposely and habitually sins over and over again, presumptuously. They know it's wrong. They keep doing it. They want to do wrong. That's a sinner as you read it here. Now, I understand even the most upright, uh, uh, blameless guy, right? Zacharias, I think of, and Elizabeth in, in uh, Luke chapter 1, blameless according to the law. But they were still sinners in a theological, in a doctrinal sense. But practically speaking, they weren't trying to live wicked lives. The people that are coming to eat with Jesus, publicans were known for being cheats. They were known for twisting and perverting the law to make more money. And sinners. This would include prostitutes. It would include drunkards. It would include thieves. That, that sort of person. Many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans? And sinners. 
Now, there are some people that turn, some Christians that turn to this passage and use it to show that it's perfectly okay for a Christian to go to a bar or a tavern, sit down, have a beer with their buddies. They, they believe there's nothing wrong with that because Jesus sat down with the worst of the worst and, and ate a meal with them. Guys, isn't it immediately evident that it's not the same situation, right? Jesus, yes, he was a friend to sinners. Yes, he, he sat down and ate food at the same table with them. It, it wasn't a bar. It wasn't a tavern. Okay, that's one thing we, you have to get right. The other thing was Jesus was doing this so that he could talk to them about repentance, as you're going to see in just the next couple verses. So to use this to justify a Christian going to places of temptation and lust and, you know, just, can I call it places of darkness? You, you don't need to be in those places. You, you can reach a sinner just as well going to Mug and Bean, right? Sit down and have a muffin and coffee or something. Talk to them about repentance there. Uh, but we'll not spend too much time on that. Verse 12, it says, But when Jesus heard that, He said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. So with those publicans and sinners at the table, Jesus is being very straightforward, which is probably why the common man liked Jesus so much. He just said it like it was. Right? He didn't beat around the bush. He just, you guys are sick. You guys need help. You need a doctor. Which, again, some people say that if, if, if a Christian goes to a doctor, they're showing a lack of faith. If they take medicine, showing a lack of faith. Some people, this might be relevant with the whole vaccine thing. They say vaccines are wrong because we should trust God for our health and not modern medicine. Jesus says that sick people need a physician, right? There's nothing wrong with sick people going to a doctor. And then, you know, there's other verses about medicine as well. But Verse 13, But go ye and learn what that meaneth. And then he's going to give them the verse to go study. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So these Pharisees and scribes, obviously, they thought that they were righteous. Well, anybody with that heart of a heart, they're not... Those are the ones that are going to have God's wrath poured out upon them. It's the ones that are contrite and sorrowful and brokenhearted and says, God, I know I'm... I think of Luke chapter 18 where the guy bangs on his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the guy that Jesus is, is calling to and says, you guys come home. Now, if a man is already righteous, right, if, then he... Why would he have an issue with Jesus? Jesus doesn't need to call them from a wicked life to, to fall in line with the Bible. The Bible says, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Right? So if there were people that were already following the Bible and listening to God and trying to be obedient, when the Messiah showed up, they recognized Him for who He was, and there's no need for a special calling to them to repent. But let's come back to verse 13. I, I want to check this cross-reference with you. Look at Hosea 6, verse 6. That's the verse that Jesus told them to go study. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. Do you realize how many Christians there are today? They've been saved, I don't know, 5, 10, 20 years, and they have not once turned to Hosea 6, verse 6. Do you know there are very few times in Jesus' ministry where He said, go study this verse. 
this is one of those times. Right? Don't, now, I'm, I'm not saying this is the only verse of Scripture that Jesus ever pointed out, but He did specifically say, Go ye and learn what this means. So what was the problem with the Pharisee and scribe? They believed that just by practicing certain religious rituals that they put on a good show and men would give them honor, and therefore God also must be happy. It was all outward. It was all just religious and, uh, you know, putting on a show. That's not what God is impressed with. Hosea 6, verse 6, it says, For I desired mercy, God speaking here, and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Now, if you've turned to it, I'd like, I'd like for you to look at the verse before it. Because when Jesus says, go and learn, you need to study its context as well. Verse 5, Therefore have I hewed them. That's to cut them up into pieces. This is God speaking. Therefore have I hewed them by the prophets. Now the prophets didn't come with a physical sword and cut the people in pieces, but they did have the sword of the Spirit. And as the prophets spoke, right, they said, God's going to judge you. You need to repent. Over and over this happened. Verse 5, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and thy judgments are as the light that goeth forth. Hosea put his comment on that. Verse 6, For I desired mercy, God says, and not sacrifice. God said, I, I'm not asking you to put on a religious show. That's what the Jews were doing back then. That's what they were doing in the days of Jesus. He said, I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. I'd rather you get to know me personally, God says rather than you just come down to my house, leave a gift, and then, and then walk off never having spoken to me, never having listened to me. Now again, I, I don't want to spend all of our time in verse 13 back in Matthew 9, but I would really encourage you to spend some time in Hosea 6, to spend some time with that thought and, and make sure that you are putting more emphasis on your personal relationship with Jesus Christ and not just going through religious motions. Verse 14 says, Then came to him the disciples of John, John the Baptist, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Well, the answer is, it's rhetorical. Obviously not. But why would they be in a state of sorrow? This, that would be a very joyful time. But the days will come when the bridegroom, we would just say groom, when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. So fasting and mourning, the sadness, that, that often went together, often does go together even now. And Jesus is pointing out, I'm, I'm with them right now. But one day when I'm taken away from them, then they will have a reason to fast. Which, by the way, this is one verse that does indicate right now we should practice fasting. Jesus has not come back to fetch His wife to His bride to take us home for the, for the wedding. So uh, we, we should be fasting from time to time. Uh, by the way, let me slip it in real quick. Attendance code is Hosea 6, verse 6. All right, so back to verse 15. Uh, the bride, I want to just throw this in here as well. These were the disciples of John. Over there in John chapter 3, verse, I think it's 29, John the Baptist says, 
He acknowledges that Jesus is the bridegroom. And he acknowledges, obviously, there's a bride is involved as well. But John considers himself just one of the friends of the bride and the bridegroom. Now, the reason that's important, the bridegroom, Jesus, the bride, the church, John is not part of the church. He, he died before the body of Christ started, right? So just keep that in mind. But verse 16, Jesus is, in verse 16 and 17, Jesus is going to give two illustrations, and I believe it does link up with what verse 15, it, it kind of is the next step after verse 15. Jesus is with what will become the church, right? He's with his disciples. Those disciples would eventually go on to be part of the body of Christ. So he's presently with his bride. Jesus then dies, resurrects, ascends to heaven. Now he's no longer with his bride. Then they mourn. They fast, right? He's gone. Now when Jesus comes back, he is going to establish an earthly kingdom. We will be there with him. But what the Jews were expecting, right? They were expecting the Messiah to immediately show up and just give them their kingdom back without any inward change from the people. So they thought you could take the old, the, the, the way Israel was, the old Israel, and put them in a brand new kingdom under the leadership of the Messiah. And Jesus is going to give these parables that indicates you cannot take something old and mix it with something new. You can't establish a righteous kingdom and bring wicked, self-righteous sinners into it. That's not going to work. So that, I, I believe, as, as I've mentioned, Jesus was there, then He's gone away, and now these parables indicate the time when He comes back. Jesus has to renovate both the people and the place. Israel, the land of Israel, has to get fixed. So let's, let's look at these two illustrations, these parables, see what they have to say. No man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment. For that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. So you don't take, you don't cut a patch from a new garment, put it on an old one, and think it's going to fix. It, it's just going to make, make an even worse tear in the garment. So you don't mix the new and the old. Verse 17, Neither do men put new wine into old bottles. Now in the days of, of, you know, in biblical times, the bottles were made of leather. And if a bottle got old, that leather would begin to get hard and crack. So you don't put new wine into old bottles because that, that wine will eventually, it needs to breathe and it will begin to expand a little bit, move in there, and it could break the bottle. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break and the wine runneth out and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. So both things need to be made new. Now, in, there are not any other verses, in, even in the other Gospels, that sheds more light on, on these parables. Jesus, the disciples, I don't know if they asked Him privately, maybe they did, but we don't have any record in Matthew, Mark, or Luke of Jesus explaining this parable. So I'm going to do the best I can to use other verses from other places in Scripture to shed some light on what these things, I believe, mean. Uh, come to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings. Now we're going to look at several verses, so please follow along with me at, uh, in your own Bible. 1 Kings 11 verse 29. Alright, first off we're going to look 
at the garment. Jesus talked about uh, an old garment and you don't... Uh, yeah, a new cloth and an old garment. So we're going to look at the garment, first of all. And, and before we read these, these verses, 1 Kings 11, verse 29, can I just say, a lot of people, when they explain these two parables that, we've, that we're looking at, they just use a practical application. And they say, you cannot bring your old life into your new life. Um, once you get saved, you leave the old life out. You don't mix them. And that is a very good practical application of what we're reading. Okay, so if you've heard people preach it like that or say it like that, I'm not against that. I think that is the practical lesson that we can learn. That is how we would apply it to our lives right now today. But I believe there's something a little more, a little more doctrinal, a little deeper. I think there's even something a, a bit prophetical in these parables. All right, so 1 Kings 11 and verse 29. It says, And it came to pass at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him in the way, and he had clad himself with a new garment. Did you know that's the only other place in the Bible where you read about a new garment? And it says, And they too were alone in the field. And Ahijah caught the new garment that was on him and rent it in twelve pieces. Man, this preacher grabbed this guy's brand new shirt and starts ripping it up. Can you imagine, right, the king... Or, I'm sorry, not the king, but the uh, Jeroboam would go on to be the king of his part of the nation. But this, you know, he's a big shot, big time politician. This is tremendous boldness. Verse 31, And he said to Jeroboam, Take thee ten pieces, for thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and will give ten tribes to thee. So what does the garment represent? The garment represents Israel. He rips it into 12 pieces because there are 12 tribes to Israel. He hands Jeroboam 10 pieces. You're going to reign over 10 tribes. And David, through Solomon, they're going to have two tribes, which was Judah and uh, Benjamin down there with him. Benjamin was located within the province of Judah. So it, it got divided 10 and 2. Well, see that garment, now it's split. And if you're going to make that thing right, yeah, uh, turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. You can't just put everything back together. What you have to do, you can't have part of it old, part of it new, and then make the nation whole again. You can't have that. you got to fix the whole thing. You need a whole new garment. So what Jesus does when He comes back is, is He, after the battle of Armageddon, right, the righteous come into the kingdom and... All Israel will be saved, the Bible says. They start fresh. It's not that there are no more Jews after the tribulation, but the Jews that enter into the kingdom, they were, they were accepting of Christ, and in they come, and it's a brand new, fresh start. Look at uh, Ezekiel 37, verse 15. Ezekiel 37, 15. The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel his companions. So what do we have? We have the two divisions in the kingdom, this garment that has been ripped up. you got Israel up in the north, Ephraim, and then Judah in the south. 
and join, in verse 17, and join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. He's putting the nation back together. Verse 18, And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what, these, what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. And the sticks whereon thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes, and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. Keep that in the back of your mind, in the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all, that's David. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places, wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And David my servant shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. And they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes, statutes and do them. And he goes on, and they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, and so forth. So I believe when Jesus talks about you don't take a part of a new and, and just put a patch on an old garment, you need to make the whole thing right. The whole thing needs to get fixed. If, you know, if you're familiar with Ezekiel 37, the first portion of that chapter, it speaks about the resurrection it's a promise that Israel, speak to them bones, right? You guys know I'm going to do it. Them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Now I hear the word of the Lord. That's where we get it, Ezekiel 37. And they rise up. So this is Israel being called out of their graves to go into the kingdom. All right, now let's look at the bottles. Hold your place in Ezekiel because we're going to be in chapter 36 in just a moment. But I want you first to see Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65. I'm going to show you some verses about the new wine and the old bottles. All right, we're in Isaiah chapter 65 and verse number 8. Isaiah 65, 8. Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, Destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sake, that I may not destroy them all. So notice that the new wine, that matches what our parable is about, it correlates to my servants. Do you see that? The new wine, which has a blessing in it. It's in this parable, if you will, pictures the servants. Verse 9, And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains. Do you see it there? and mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. And then he goes on to talk about the place. Uh, come to Je Jeremiah, the next book over. Jeremiah chapter 48. Jeremiah 48. So new wine, that can be used to represent God's servants, the, the righteous uh, within a nation. Jeremiah 48. Now I want to show you a verse about bottles. Verse 11. Moab hath been at ease from his youth. He hath settled on his lees and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel. That's whenever you have wine, you have those, um, 
Oh, the word is escaping me. If we were in class, you'd be telling me what the word is. Pulp. You have the pulp. And uh, it, it settled on its leaves. That pulp falls to the bottom of the, of the bottle. So unless you shake it up and pour it from bottle to bottle, that stuff just, it, it gathers at the bottom. He's settled on his leaves and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel. What he means is the people of Moab, they haven't been chased out of their land. They haven't gone from one country to another country, to one land to another land. So the vessels or the bottles represents the land where the people are. Neither hath he gone into captivity. Therefore his taste remained in him and his scent is not changed. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will send unto him wanderers that shall cause him to wander and shall empty his vessels and break their bottles. See that? Mess up the land. Now, come, come to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, this is a tremendous chapter. I wish we had time to read the whole thing, but we, we don't. But we're going to read a decent amount of it here. Ezekiel 36, verse 1. Also, thou son of man, prophesy unto the mountains of Israel, and say, ye mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. He's talking to the land, talking to the mountains. Look at verse 4. Therefore, ye mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God to the mountains, and to the hills, and to the rivers, and to the valleys, to the desolate waste, and to the cities that are forsaken, which became a prey and derision to the residue of the heathen that are round about. And then he goes on to talk about what he'll do for the land. Look at verse 8. But ye, O mountains of Israel, ye shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are at hand to come. For behold, I am for you and will turn unto you, and ye shall be tilled and sown. And I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, even all of it. And the cities shall be inhabited, and the way shall be builded. Do you see how he says all the house of Israel? Not just Judah, not just Ephraim, the whole, one stick, the whole thing comes together again. Verse 11, I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and bring fruit. And I will settle you after your old estates, that they get to live in the land, and will do better unto you than at your beginning. And ye shall know that I am the Lord. Yea, I will cause men to walk upon you, even my people Israel, and they shall possess thee, and thou shalt be their inheritance, and thou shalt no more henceforth bereave them of men. Uh, the natural disasters are going to calm down in the kingdom age. The people of Israel will possess that land. It won't be owned by Gentiles as it was when this was being written. Verse 13, Thus saith the Lord God, Because they say unto you, Thou land devourest up men, and hast bereaved thy nations. Therefore thou shalt devour men no more, neither bereave thy nations any more, saith the Lord God. Neither will I cause men to hear in thee the shame of the heathen any more. Neither shalt thou bear the reproach of the people any more. Neither shalt thou cause thy nations to fall any more, saith the Lord God. Notice, you won't bear the reproach of the people. Why? You don't, take, you don't take old wine, put it in the new bottle. Now, I know Jesus had it backwards. He said, Jesus, I said gave it backwards. He said new wine into old bottles. You don't take uh, this, this resurrected crowd and put them into that old land with all these problems in it, possessed by Gentiles. You don't do that. How does the kingdom age come, come to pass? Jesus comes back. Romans chapter 11, all Israel shall be saved. He brings the righteous Jews through the tribulation. He resurrects the Old Testament righteous Jews after He comes back. 
and they get to enter into the land, sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, and the people are fixed, and the place is fixed. Look uh, down a little further, verse 33. Verse 33, Thus saith the Lord God, In the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the waste shall be builded, and the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that pass by. And they shall say, This land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden, paradise restored. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. So now you have new wine in a new bottle. Then the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I the Lord build the ruined places and plant that that was desolate. I the Lord have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I will increase them with men like a flock. As the holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem in her solemn feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men, and they shall know that I am the Lord. That is what Israel wanted. But when Jesus showed up, he said, repent. Sinners need to repent. You guys that think you're righteous, you think you don't need repentance. So the problem in Jesus' day was trying to convince these self-righteous leaders of the nation that they did need to repent. That was the challenge. Come back to Matthew 9. And that's why they didn't get their, their nation restored. They refused to repent. So the people weren't ready for this regenerated land. Okay, Matthew 9, let's continue on in verse number 18. Matthew 9, verse 18. While he spake these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler and worshipped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead. But come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And when you read this story in the other Gospels, uh, in, in Mark and Luke, in some, one place it will say she's, uh, she's already, she's, she lays there dead. <laughs> Forgive me, I don't want to take time to look at the other verses right now. But each Gospel writer words it a little different. One says she's laying at the point of death. Uh, in this verse, even now dead. Uh, so some people say it, it sounds like a contradiction. It, there's no contradiction in it. When the man left the house, his daughter was about to die. By the time he reached Jesus, he's thinking in his mind, she's even now dead. Right? So that, that was, it's a very practical statement that, that uh, this man is making. But there's, you, can just, you can read the synoptics for yourself and see that there's really no contradiction there. Uh, verse 19, And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. So he's busy heading to the next appointment. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. Now, was there any magical powers in his garment? No, obviously not. But in her mind, anything connected to Jesus would get the job done. She realizes that it's not the garment that's so special. It's the one wearing the garment. But she realizes she's not worthy to be in this man's presence, to bother him. She just wants to just reach in and grab onto the hem of the garment, the bottom of it, and that'll be enough. So it's a great humility and a great example of faith. Verse 22, But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. So she, she was nervous about doing this. 
Thy faith hath made thee whole. Now, he's giving this statement, I believe, is about her physical condition. Thy faith hath made thee whole. However, I do believe that there's something spiritual going on as well, that, that she... I don't want to go as far as to say this is some sort of profession of faith, uh, like we would do it today, like she's proclaiming Jesus as her Savior. But she is proclaiming a great faith in Jesus, as much as it had been revealed at that time. So it says, Thy faith hath made thee whole, and the woman was made whole from that hour. Now, if you read in the other Gospels, you'll see that she spent all of her living on doctors and was none the better. She wasted it on the physicians. You know what I find curious about this? She was sick for 12 years. Do you know how old this young lady is that Jesus is going to raise from the dead in just a few verses? 12 years old. I've preached a sermon about that a while back, about coincidences and when paths cross and so forth. So I'm not going to get into all those details now, but maybe you can just think on that later. So Jesus took time. He stopped in the middle of trying to help someone else, going down the road, people all around him. Jesus took time to recognize somebody's humility, somebody's faith, and to comfort this lady who, this is, in her mind, it's got to be the last-ditch effort, right? She's thinking nothing else will work. The only thing I, 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 I need a miracle. And there's a man that can do these kind of miracles, and she's so desperate. It's wonderful to know that we have a Savior who, in the midst of a very busy society, will take time to recognize when someone is desperately reaching out for help. Verse 23, And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, every culture responds to death a little differently. There are some um, similarities, but I know in Malawi, funerals, it's the biggest part of their culture. And uh, in a lot of cultures here in South Africa, I believe it's the same thing. But in, in Jewish culture, they had people assigned to mourn. In the Old Testament, you could read about the mourning women. Um, these were women that were, they would go to funerals just to cry out and, and show pain. And it wasn't a, a fake kind of a thing, but they were, they were very good, evidently, at expressing this, this pain. So that's the noise that the people were making. Oh! And I'm, I'm not trying to make fun of it. I'm not trying to, forgive me for trying to duplicate it, but they were, they, they were heartbroken. Now, a minstrel, think if a guitar and a banjo had a baby. That's a minstrel, right? It's, it looks like a mix of those two instruments. All right, and he said unto them, verse 24, Give place, give me a little room. For the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. They, they laughed so hard, they started saying, oh, yeah, sure, and started making jokes and making fun of Jesus for having said that. Now, think about it from a natural point of view. Jesus hasn't been there. He hasn't met this girl. He hasn't been in that house. He doesn't know the situation. These people have watched this young girl slip from sick to dead. They know the situation. There's a, the, the beginnings of a funeral going on, and... Jesus comes in and says, hey, give me a little room. She's just sleeping. Now, Jesus is not teaching a doctrinal lesson on what death is. He is making a practical statement to say that this young lady's situation is temporary. In their minds, she's dead, she's gone, that's it. There's, there's no coming back from this. There are other places in the Bible where Jesus equates 
death with sleep, right? John chapter 11, he said, I go to Lazarus that I may awake him out of his sleep. And the disciples said, but if he's sick, isn't it good that he, that he sleeps? And Jesus said, okay, guys, you're missing it. Let me just tell you, Lazarus is dead. And he was going to go raise him from the dead. So Jesus, when you want to get the doctrinal truth about death and sleep, yes, those two things go together. Those two terms can, can overlap. Some people, when they read this, they say, you see, dead and sleep are two different things. You've got to take the verse within its context. The people thought this is permanent, and Jesus is trying to tell them it's temporary. That's why you need to give me a chance. You need to give me room to work. So the next time you're in a desperate situation and you think that's it, there's no coming back from this, you might want to give God a little bit of room to work. And you might look at the promises that He's given you and say, there's no way this can work. But then you might need to consider when Abraham, who was physically too old, and Sarah with the deadness of her womb, God is able to do some awesome and amazing things. So you might want to just give Him some space and don't laugh at the promises, but, but believe Him. Verse 25, But when the people were put forth, He went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose. And the fame hereof went abroad into all that land. Now, again, Matthew doesn't give us all the details. He uh, telescopes out. He doesn't zoom in on all the details. He's just giving us the, the general idea of the story. When you read in Luke's Gospel, you find in Luke chapter 8, at the end of it there, you have this story. And we read that the, when Jesus raised her from the dead, her spirit came again and she revived. So we know that she was dead, and her spirit had to come back. She had stopped breathing. Furthermore, we know that Jesus didn't go in alone. He, he had Peter, James, John, and the girl's mother and father. They all went in. So, we, again, no contradiction. You just put all the stories together, and, and each gospel supplements the other. All right, verse 27. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. So son of David was another term for the Messiah. Verse 28, And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this. They said unto him, Yea, Lord. Now, some people have found this a bit strange, that Jesus would ask them, Believe ye that I am able to do this. I don't think it's a strange question. I think this is actually something that uh, God asks a lot of people when they step into the guest room, right, in, into the prayer closet. Because we come to Him saying, God, please have mercy. Okay, but do you really think I can fix this? I know there's been a lot of times in my life that, as I just mentioned actually with, this, with the previous example, we look at it and think there's just no coming back from this. I like the response of another uh, different story, but when, when a, a man came to Jesus and said, please, I believe it was help my child, and Jesus said, do you believe? He said, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Right. So even though there's a part of us that cries out and says, have mercy, we have nowhere else to turn. We know that God is full of mercy and that He can do something, but, but will He? Right. Believe ye that I'm able to do this. And they said, yea, Lord. Verse 29, Then touched he their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. I've heard people take this verse. Man, they spin this hard. They just yank it out of his context, these faith healers, and say, you know, name it and claim it, that crowd. Uh, 
they, they just say, whatever you desire, you know, if you have the right amount of faith, you have faith, according to your faith, be it unto you. It does not say according to your imagination, be it unto you. There's a difference. They have asked Jesus specifically for, for help on a specific thing. Jesus says, Are you, do you believe I'm able to do this? Yes. Okay, then I, I will do that. That's all that Jesus is saying here. This does not open God's coffers, His treasury, to say, all right, whatever you wish for, whatever you desire, if your imagination can come up with it, I'll do it. That, that's a horrible way to abuse this verse. When God has told you, I will fix this, this is what I will do for you, then that faith you have in God's Word, you can expect it to come to pass. Verse 30, And their eyes were opened, and Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man know it. Now, we met this situation as well with the uh, leper that was cleansed. Jesus said, don't tell anyone. Then he blazed it abroad. Verse 20, uh, where are we at? Verse 31, I'm sorry. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. Over and over, this happened with Jesus, where he would tell people, don't say anything, and they would just spread it abroad. Um, as I mentioned, because he had more to do in that area. He didn't want to get overrun with people uh, coming to him. He wanted to be able to move about, preach, and, and help where God wanted him to be. Um, I've often thought maybe we should use a little reverse psychology on the church and tell the church, all right, no more witnessing. Don't tell anyone about Jesus. And maybe, maybe that would help people to say, hey, you can't tell us not to. We're going to go do it anyway. <laughs> Who knows? That's not the right way to get it done, but I've always thought that might be an interesting tactic. Verse 32, As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. Now this accusation is going to come back up in chapter 12. We're going to spend a lot more time in chapter 12 looking at this matter of casting out devils and Jesus' ability to do it and the accusation laid against him. So I'm not going to spend a long time here on it. Um, when we talk about the dumb spake, somebody who's dumb is not like dumb, like, like stupid, but unable to speak. In this case, it was because of, of an unclean spirit in there. <laughs> You know, as I was preparing for this, I thought, man, if, if Jesus could make the dumb speak, I wonder if he could also do a miracle that would make some people shut up. You know, <laughs> I don't know if that's a different demon and he needs to cast out or what, but um, th that has really nothing to do with the explanation for the story. I, that's just the thought that crossed my mind. Uh, but the Pharisees, obviously, they, they are trying to connect Jesus with, um, with Satan. They're just trying to ruin his reputation by saying these things. They have no scriptural reason. They have no practical reason for saying this. And as I said, in chapter 12, we'll deal more with that. In verse 35, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Now again, Matthew's done this once before, you might remember. He gives just a kind of a blanket statement about everything that Jesus had been doing. The reason he does that is to set the stage for what is going to be said next. Jesus has been all over the country. He's been preaching, teaching, healing. So he confirms the word with signs following. 
And this is one of the conclusions that Jesus comes to after seeing all of this. Verse 36, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. They had no proper leadership. Spiritual, political, there was no one there to help the people in their society, in their everyday life, in their spiritual relationship with God. They had absolutely no leadership. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They were scattered abroad, just moving about. It was confusion and chaos. And it broke Jesus' heart. He was moved with compassion. Verse 37, Then saith he unto his disciples, Now what comes next? If If my memory serves, this is the only time Jesus shared a prayer request with his disciples, where he said, Guys, help me pray about this. He says to the disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Which, by the way, is still true. Verse 38, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that He will send forth laborers into His harvest. I want to ask you if if you have helped Jesus with this prayer request. Have you asked the Father to call forth more laborers? Have you specifically asked God in what way and in what area can you labor in His harvest? Jesus says pray about the harvest, chapter 9. You know what He does in chapter 10? He calls 12 and sends them out. You know what He does in chapter 11? Chapter 11, verse 1, It came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding His 12 disciples, He departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. He says pray about it. Send men out. Go yourself. I think it's a wonderful illustration of how to go about missions. This is how the church should handle missions. We pray about the harvest. Then we send men either out of our church or we financially help other men that are going out into the harvest. And then we go out into the cities and villages near us and teach and preach. It's a wonderful... I love the way that, that Matthew has laid that out. Can I, I want to show you one verse in closing. Matthew, or, uh, Matthew, Numbers chapter 27. This is just a good cross-reference. I don't want to pass up. Numbers 27, verse 17. And this will go with the sheep not having a shepherd. I'm going to close on this idea. Numbers 27, verse... Can I, can I start you at verse 15? This is Moses coming towards the end of his life. And he says here, verse 15, And Moses spake unto the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, which may go out before them, and which may go in before them, and which may lead them out, and which may bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. The reason I point that out is so that you know When Matthew says they were a sheep having no shepherd, it speaks to a leadership problem. They don't have a man to lead them out and lead them in. Bring them in, bring them out. So that's what was breaking Jesus' heart. And folks, we're still lacking that today. Strong leadership within the body of Christ, within local churches that can organize efforts to reach lost souls and call sinners to repentance. It's still a need that we should constantly be praying about. All right, that's as far as we're going to get tonight. I appreciate you guys taking time with me. Uh, If you have any questions, 
I don't see any in the comments. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. If you have a question, you can try to slip it in. But uh, if you'd rather just ask me privately, email, WhatsApp, either way. I'm perfectly good with that. And Lord willing, um, this has been a help to you. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you this evening for the opportunity to look through this chapter at the great things you have done. Lord, I want to follow up on this prayer request that was given. Jesus, you taught the disciples to pray this. You, you, you asked them, you told them to pray about the harvest. Please, God, raise up more men that can be leaders in local churches and take the gospel to foreign fields. And Lord, raise up uh, some, some strong young ladies that can support their husbands in the ministry or even go themselves and be a viable part in some ministry somewhere else. Lord, just prepare people, prepare laborers to go out and do their part in the harvest. Father, thank you for the privilege of being here and, and getting to teach this, these things. Please, God, use these lessons to prepare men and women for your service. Father, I pray that you prepare us for tomorrow. Uh, please help us to come with open ears and hungry hearts. Lord, we desire to be fed and hear from you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I don't see any more questions, so or any questions. Lord willing, we'll see you guys tomorrow.